Well, church, it's my joy to introduce to you one of our deacons, uh, John Klobuchar, and would you please welcome him as he comes to preach the word. Good morning, church family. How are you? What a wonderful day. The greatness of our God. What an amazing song to transition to what we'll speak about today. And today I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I think uh, maybe Chris wanted to save the rest of the uh, Sermon on the Mount for himself. I don't know. But, uh, but today we're going to look at the series on the book of Psalms. and uh, Or not series, I'm sorry. A message on the book of Psalms. And specifically what we're going to look at is Psalm 8 today. And yes, the greatness of our God will be a key theme here. And if you could open to your Bible to Psalm 8 and then follow along. While you're turning there and before we read, I want us to think about what it means for something to be truly majestic. Um, And this may take a little rewiring because words like majestic or awesome seem often misplaced nowadays and things that are common. I'm certainly guilty of going through my day and assigning awesome to things that are common. But if we for a moment kind of reclaim that idea, the, the word majestic, and limit that word's use to something truly special, what would, they be, what would that be? Now, the easy button is certainly God himself. But when we consider this physical universe that we live in, or human activity, what comes to mind? For me, it's not hard living so close to the Sierra Mountains. Think of Lake Tahoe, Mammoth Lakes, Yosemite, that these are indeed majestic. Uh, Cindy and I were recently visiting our grandkids and took a quick trip to Lake Tahoe, where we walked for a few hours along the shoreline. At one point, we noticed a sign in the road that said, Scenic View. Have, have you all seen that, driving up 80, and you see Scenic View here? I think those are there as a safety precaution, because as you're going through that road, it's dangerous enough, because you're looking, oh, here's a spot to turn off and spend a minute looking so I don't do it while I'm driving. But when we saw that sign, we both looked at each other and goes, where is there not a majestic view in all that we see? Um, And if you have traveled there, you know that that this is not an exaggeration. It is truly majestic to be in those mountains. The transparent, and speaking of Lake Tahoe itself, the transparent blue water, it's captivating. And the backdrop of mountain peaks of dense forest green Everywhere you stop and look, it is a different vantage point of something that is truly majestic. Yet that grand majesty is not accidental, nor is it ultimate. Like us, what is majestic in the boundaries of the universe is ultimately dependent. If you, not have, if you have not already done so, um, go to Psalm 8, and as is our custom, if you could stand while we read God's word. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Because of your adversaries, you have established a stronghold. From the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than the heavenly beings 
and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in this world, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. Please be seated. Psalm 8 is the first, what we would consider the psalm of praise we find in the book of Psalms. And it's perfectly placed in the midst of psalms that are full of lament, where darkness of pain and anguish and brokenness are met with this beautiful reflection on God's majesty and humanity's place and purpose concerning his glory. What I plan for us to see from Psalm 8 is that, number one, the name of God is itself majestic. Secondly, there is power in depending on God's majestic name. And thirdly, humanity's privileged status as bearers of God's name. This psalm is bookended with the phrase, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verses 1, 3, and 9 provide our context that the rest of the psalm reflects against, that the name of God itself is majestic. The translation I read is, is a bit rare because it uses the actual covenant name of God, Yahweh. Most of your translations will likely have the, the word or words of the poem say, O Lord, or simply Lord in all capitals. This is significant because it helps us understand something vital about the sacredness of God's covenant name. At different points in Jewish history, and depending on the sect of Judaism, God's covenant name, Yahweh, was not said due to reverence. Even today, many Jews will simply refer to Yahweh as the name. This was and is done to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, the third commandment we see in Exodus 20. Now, this literal application of the third commandment found its way into our translations as Lord because the Greek translation of the New Testament would often use the Greek word kurios, which means Lord when it's translated Yahweh in the text. But it's important for us to recognize that in this opening and closing refrain, that is indeed Yahweh's name that is itself magnificent or majestic. The bookending of this psalm is what is known as an inclusio. I, I hope that's, that's as technical as I hope to get, by the way. <laughs> but it's telling for us because it shows us how God's people are in a privileged place to both know and bear God's name. To know God, to know his greatness is something that we are privileged with. In his commentary on the Psalms, Gerald Wilson says this, knowing that the psalmist is in fact saying, oh Yahweh, my Lord, makes a much clearer connection between Yahweh and the majestic name the psalmist exalts. The gift of God's very name Yahweh to Israel in Exodus event was an act of radical self-revelation by which he made himself known and accessible to the people he has taken as his own. This is not the hidden God of laments, but the God who displays himself to be seen in his creation, the God who wills to be known in his majesty by human beings and creation alike. Here, God's covenant is presented as synonymous. His covenant name is presented as a synonymous with majesty or perhaps more easily understood, the imagery of creation as a backdrop 
shows us that all that is majestic is majestic because Yahweh's very being is majestic. In fact, this is evident in the very meaning of God's covenant name. Most literally translated, it means he is. While this is seemingly a simple expression, it is infinite in meaning and implications. In Exodus 3, as God engages Moses from the burning bush, Moses asks God, who shall I say sent me? And God says in verse 14, tell him I am has sent you. Now the word behind I am, while different, informs us of how Yahweh became the covenant name of God. Yahweh expressed the same meaning as I am. It is only expressed in basically the third person, he is. What this means is that God is the only uncreated reality in the universe. What this implies is that everything else's existence is dependent on him. And all that is majestic has its origins in Yahweh because his name is itself majestic. And for God's covenant people, God's covenant name also implies his faithfulness to his promises that are a reflection of his character. His covenant or, or steadfast love is an expression of his being. In Psalm 89, verses 1 and 2, we read, we read, I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens, and you, you will establish your faithfulness. Yet, he has chosen to manifest, show his power in what is meek. What is dependent is a source of exercising his power and bearing his name, which leads us to the second point from, from verse 2. There is power in depending on God's glorious name. What a stark contrast to the glorious nature of God's name. But is this right? From the mouth of babies, God establishes a stronghold that silences enemies? How many parents in frustration of a crying infant here have uttered this phrase, I don't know what you want? Not many? Yes? It may, it, it may, might make us chuckle a little bit now. Thanks for chuckling a little, by the way. But in the moments of hours of anguish trying to figure out what is wrong, it's exhausting and creates moments where parents are ready to what? Just give up. Watching my daughter and son-in-law raise our granddaughter, we certainly empathize with this, and we struggle with providing a good answer when we get that phone call. Those are, those are starting to reduce, which is nice. Parents who get this know the question that goes through our mind, or the questions, are you hungry? Maybe you're cold. Feed them. Put a blanket around them. But this is not the answer. The intense crying continues because the baby is depending on you, depending on the parent to know what they want or need. And for the parent to meet whatever need or want because they themselves in their infancy are utterly dependent A parent or guardian is the one with who they must trust to meet that need. Even as parents often fail to have the right answers, boy, do I. Here's here's what my wife often tells our kids. I wish I was as smart as you think I am. But parents are that first and continual source, especially for infants, because where else are they going to turn to have their needs met? So it should be no surprise that the psalmist is identifying himself and all of us with infants. Last week, Nick Harris so beautifully conveyed 
how our posture before God ought to be one of dependence. How Jesus' words in Matthew 7, now Nick, make sure I get this right. Those were active, present participles. Did I get it? Yeah, I got a thumbs up. Okay. They convey to us how we are continually, those, those of us who continually are continually asking, continually seeking, continually knocking, we will certainly be answered with what we need. While this will likely feel like a paradox in our independent-minded culture, our greatest strength is in our dependence. That God meets our greatest challenges from a position of dependence and humility is rooted in the majesty of his name. There is no other position that, that we can have before the one who is majesty than one of dependence. Conversely, those that are wrapped up in independence effectively reject the majestic name of God for their own sake. Well, we do that sometimes as well. The enemies that are referred to here are those who arrogantly rely on self-assertion. And boy, isn't that our story often. Yet, when we come to a place to recognize the magnificent nature of God, his very being, both in and who he is and how we have witnessed his faithfulness, our response of dependence is not only obvious, but the actual source of strength and defense against all that is against us. When we consider the illustration of parents, or really any point in life where we are up against our limits, out of ideas, exhausted, it is only in a posture of dependence where we will gain the needed strength, not our own. The beautiful words of Isaiah 40 capture better anything that I can say about this. Reading from verse 26, it says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exhausted. But they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So now that we've established that the name of God itself is majestic, and that there is power in depending on God's majestic name, we now will look at the privilege as image bearers of God's name in verses 5 through 8. Now, a quick promise, a quick note here on verse 5. Verse 5 varies depending on the translations you probably have in front of you because one of the key words behind that word that is it could be spiritual beings, it could be God himself, it could be angels, depending on what, what translation you look at, is actually the word Elohim. Now, if you've been studying the Bible enough that should spark your interest. Elohim, is that not God? Yes, depending on the context. Um, That Hebrew Elohim is actually a plural noun. It depends on the context, and it can be translated as God with a big G. And God's actually uh, 
plural with a small g. A um, few other tra- uh, words as well, but also can be translated as heavenly beings. And God or heavenly beings is beings, I think, best convey the, the context in this verse. It's my humble opinion that heavenly beings most likely is right because it makes sense that humans are created a little lower than another part of the creative art creative order rather than a little lower than God himself. And then if, if you remember this use um, in the book of Hebrews, it actually uh, uses the word angels, angelos, which is the, a Greek word there, which I think tilts in that way. But either way, let's continue. If you've ever camped at high elevation, you should understand this, but there is little that can rival the view of the night sky when you're up in elevation um, up in the mountains. Well, my boys and I used to, when we used to off-road, we used to camp I, I, usually around 10,000 feet and, and, and the difference between the stars here with all the background light and such and there is just unbelievable. Now, I did, I did check this with Miss Sarah Walsh. I think I'm working with correct information here. Oh, I, oh, she said I was. But as I understand it, when you're up that high, there's less atmosphere to see through and all that background lighting, as I mentioned, is gone. And stars are more visible at altitude. But if you've ever experienced that, it's actually overwhelmingly majestic. It's unbelievable. You're like, there's that many stars? Well, actually, there's more. Um, What we actually can see is approximately 5,000 of what is actually over 100 million, well, 100 to 400 billion. Is that right, Sarah? I think it is. 100 to 400 billion. Billion. I had million here. It's actually billion. Billion stars in our galaxy alone. Reflecting on this, the psalmist knows these are more a are more testament Yahweh's magnificent name. Further, it is the very God whose thinking is beyond our own that is mindful of us. In Isaiah fifty five eight, he, it, uh, Yahweh declares, "For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways." This certainly begs the question, what is it about man that God is mindful of him and the son of man that he cares for him? Why is this? The psalm clearly has the image of God in mind from Genesis 1. It's dripping with the language from there. Yet when this psalm speaks of man, it uses a similar language that we find, um, that we find in Genesis 1. It's actually royal language of the image of God from Genesis 1. This idea of crowning someone is royal. It's expressing how in creating humanity, God, who is the king, is created covenant partners who would, word as verse 6 in Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 convey, would be called to exercise dominion. And this is a radical idea in the context of the ancient Near East. Israel's neighbors worshiped gods who were seen as fickle, lazy, temperamental, Humans were often considered nothing more than an afterthought in their own cosmology, created as slaves by these gods to do work that these gods were too lazy to do themselves. The only people who, who uh, were conveying this royal status were, or, or conveyed with any kind of royal status in the surrounding nations were kings, and they often considered themselves deity. Yet understanding the image of God has spilled more ink than I've read in my lifetime. Now, there's two kind of views that are prominent, that it's either a quality, and this is how I initially thought of it. What is it about me? Is it, is it my intellect? Is it my body? Is it my opposable thumb? All these things go through my, what is it about me that makes me the image of God? But another 
other way to think about it is, is that it's a status, an assignment given to you, a God, a vocation given to you by God. And this is where I found a, a Hebrew scholar, his name is Michael Heiser, pretty helpful here. And he explains how the emphasis of God's image is not, not primarily on any inherent quality. He says humankind was created as God's image. If we think of imaging as a verb or function, that translation makes sense. We are created to image God, to be his imagers. It is what we are by definition. The image is not an ability we have, but a status. We are God's representatives on earth. To be human is to image God. This is why Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is followed by what theologians call the dominant mandate in verse 28. The verse informs us that God intends us to be him on the planet. We are to create more imagers, be fruitful, multiply, fill, in order to oversee the earth by stewarding its resources, harnessing them for benefit of all human imagers. This is what the book of 1 Peter picks up on when it recognizes and portrays so clearly in chapter 2, verse 9, saying that those in Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for a people for his possession. And how the Bible itself is bookended with the renewed humanity taking up its role to reign with Christ as we read in Revelation 5. And why does this matter? Well, I personally think it is, it, it, there is a quality, but the also, and also a status based on what Roman, or actually Psalm 8 says. It is nevertheless a status God has graciously bestowed on humanity. This is a status God himself puts on us that is irrevocable. This is why multiple texts after the fall assume this status on all humans. Genesis 9, God instructs Noah that life is sacred because God made man in his own image. It is why in James 3, 9, he laments how we curse people who are made in the image of God. Further, the implications of recognizing the image of God as a status are vitally important for us to accept and depend on. It means that life has inherent dignity at all stages with, despite any qualities. You are the image of God regardless of your age, intelligence, ethnicity, height, weight, gender, marital status, or legal status. You are the image of God if you are hearing or deaf. Sorry. I knew it was going to happen. Seen or blind, rich or poor, you are the image of God because this is the status God has placed on you. It is your calling, whether you believe it or not. Yet here is where the problem exists and where our psalm ultimately directs us. From Psalm 8, we can better acknowledge God's majestic name. From Psalm 8, we can better understand our dependent nature on our irrevocable status as the image of God. Yet in responding to that calling, we do not image God well. We fail. We have a near 100% track record in failing in that calling. We fail as his image because we simply fail at being his image. In Romans 6, the apostle says the wages of sin is death because sin and idolatry are death sentences to life granted to us as God's image. And we reject that in favor of our own independence. Yet, there is hope. And that answer should be obvious. There is one man, the son of man, who is the image of God, who fulfilled the calling by complete obedience. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner puts it far better than I can, and sums it up um, perfectly. And this is regarding that question in Psalm 8, what is man? He concisely, perfectly says that only 
the incarnation, death, and reign of Christ are big enough to satisfy the answer to question, what is man? In Jesus Christ, the one who is entirely independent from eternity past, incredibly becomes dependent, becomes subject to his own creation. Even before we cried out for deliverance, recognize our dependence, Jesus' death has created the greatest stronghold against the enemy through his willingness to enter into death for us. The author of Hebrews makes this clear. After quoting Psalm 8 concerning man's place as the image, in verse 9 we read, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In Christ's death, a permanent stronghold against the enemy is established. In Colossians, we read how those in Christ are made alive. The debt of sin is completely canceled because everything was nailed to the cross. This rendered powerless any power and authority that can come against us. Further, it is now the crucified and risen Jesus whose name is Majestic. The Apostle Paul, in calling the church at Philippi to humility, sets Jesus as the example. And he says this of him, that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being born in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul goes on to say that because of that, Jesus has bestowed the name that is above every name on account of his humble obedience. When we consider how Psalm 8 is bookended with the majesty of Yahweh's name, we now see this most fully expressed in Jesus Christ. God's magnificence that transcends the unfathomable ends of the physical universe also is seen in the humiliating death of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Don't miss the significance of this truth. The ultra humility and powerless, gruesome death of our Lord is itself majestic. It is majestic for us because it is here we truly understand the depth of God's mindfulness towards us. Where the faithfulness of God was to ensure redemption for those he cares for. It is here I will close with one consideration for the coming week. And with everything that's going on, the changing things in the news, and as overwhelming as this week may be for you, think on how mindful God is of you in Jesus Christ. When being the image of God is perhaps the last thing on your mind, hear what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In the same way, when life is going really well this week, and maybe being the image of God is also the last thing on your mind, think about how mindful God is is of you in Jesus Christ this week. This is crucial. Why? It is, the only, it is only when we seek and see Jesus that we will become like him. It really is a simple principle. We cannot become what we do not see. 
But as we gaze upon the one that was trampled for our sins, not only do we see the depth of our sin, but we, we also see the depth of God's mindfulness towards us. We see the majesty in the true image of God. This is the principle that we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that in seeing him, we become like him in an increasing way. And the promise of 1 John 3, that when we finally see him face to face, we can only become like him. Also, when we see the depths of Jesus' servant heart towards us, the effect ought to be we see others in the same way. He died for me because he was mindful of me as his image. He died for, the same, for others with that same thing in mind because they are equally his image. And if you remember nothing else this week, as you likely have the picnic on your mind, I don't know, just, just guessing, consider this mindfulness of, that God has for us in Jesus all this week and proclaim each day to yourself and to one another in the spirit of Psalm 8, in the spirit of Psalm 8, sorry. And, and listen carefully how I've changed this, but I, I, I think it's appropriate. <laughs> o Jesus, our Lord, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by your majesty. You are greater, as we sang, than we can know. We're far from close from knowing you. And yet we can know you. The majesty that is Jesus Christ. Because he is Yahweh. Majestic. Majestic in his lowliness. Majestic in his death for us. Help that be the thing that no matter what strikes us this week, no matter the pain we might experience, no matter the highs we might experience, that God, we consider how mindful you were of us and that mindfulness is found in Jesus Christ. For your sake, amen.